Hi, I'm Pete McCall, and welcome to episode 65 of All About Fitness. You know, anybody knows anything about strength training or fitness or the iron game, which is what we call strength training, knows that the best research came out of the Soviet Union. Because back in the day, whether you're an athlete, a soldier, a dancer, whatever you did, a worker, you belonged to the state. So the Soviets wanted to understand how to improve human performance. They had some of the best research going back years and years. Some of the stuff that we do today still emanates from the Soviet research. Today on All About Fitness, it is indeed an honor to have as my guest, Dr. Michael Yesis. Dr. Yesis is an emeritus professor at Cal State Fullerton. He is well known for understanding the Russian methodology or the Soviet methodology and helping introduce it to the West. In our discussion today, we talk about some of the Soviet methodology. That's where we get the term plyometrics. For those of you that have done plyometrics, you know how challenging they can be. Well, you have the Soviets to, think, to, to thank for that. Dr. Yesis has a tremendous amount of experience in the field. He's written numerous articles and numerous books, including How to Build the Better Athlete and the revolutionary one-time 20 strength training program. So in our talk today, we discuss the Soviet training methods and some of the most effective ways that you could be training in your workout programs. After a brief word from our sponsors, it is truly an honor and a pleasure to interview Dr. Michael Yesis. Vicor Fitness is the maker of the new TerraCore, which is a step, bench, balance trainer, and multifaceted exercise tool combined into one single platform. Go to vicorefitness.com to see the newest piece of equipment that will be taking the fitness industry by storm in 2017. Use the code AAF to save 20% on purchasing a TerraCore of your own. TerraCore by Vicor Fitness. Vicor Fitness. Better results from better products. All right, I'm Pete McCall today with All About Fitness. I'm here with Dr. Michael Ye- uh, Michael Yesis, an emeritus professor of exercise science at Cal State Fullerton. Uh, Dr. Yesis, can you give us just a little brief background of uh, kind of uh, what it is that you do and kind of your area of expertise? Okay, uh, my main area, and this is what I taught at the university, is biomechanics and kinesiology. That's the science of kinesiology. And the... Uh, I got started in this in this area, I guess you could say, when I started reading uh, all about the Russians and what they were doing. And you know, I was amazed at the science behind everything that they did. And that's what really impressed me because I have a scientific background myself. And when I read their material and translated the articles that were for coaches and for uh, at the uh, learning institutions, uh, I was very impressed. And that got me more and more interested in taking a look at the technique of how people do things, especially athletes, uh, analyze their movements. How can we improve them? What exercises can we give them to improve that particular movement? What exercise can we do to prevent injury and so on? Um, well, with this background and I also was working with many athletes while I was teaching. Then I started my own company called Sports Training. And this has led to my work with many different athletes over the years. Publication now of over 18 books. 
probably over 2,500 articles that I've written for magazines ranging from Muscle and Fitness uh, to running magazines to just about you name it. Uh, So that is more or less a a quick synopsis uh, of what I've been doing. And I think I've come up with uh, many unique kinds of concepts and practices that I think can help many of the people who are listening to us now. Now, one thing I want to start with, uh, Dr. Yesis, is, and this is something that I've kind of talked about in one or two previous podcasts, but I think it's an interesting concept that 30 or 40 years ago, probably a little more like 35, 40 years ago, professional athletes did not really do off-season conditioning. You know, um, they would show up to spring training or they'd show up to summer training if they played in the NFL, and they would get in shape at, at training. Has, is that true? I mean, what what has changed about the way that athletes approach sports nowadays as opposed to what it was, you know, 30, 40, a little bit more, you know, more than that? Because that's a pretty recent history, correct? It is. And you're right in your assessment. Uh, they really didn't do anything. That's where the two-a-days in football came from. See, they, they had to work real hard. They thought this is the way to get them in shape real quick. Uh, but today, and I think what changed it was strength training. Strength training, we found out, hey, that can improve performance. So there was a big push on strength training. And today, strength training dominates. I think they do this throughout the year. And since they do it throughout the year, they can't help but stay in relatively good uh, condition. And many of them wanted to excel. So then they also got started on some running programs, picked up personal trainers, you know, to help them with it. Of course, the teams, even though they have a strength and conditioning coach, he typically works with them mostly during the season. But many athletes do it on their own in the offseason. So strength training has been the big factor. And, but and, how they go about doing it, that's another story. <laughs> and that gets into the big the big question. Well, who really introduced the concept? And we, you already mentioned it, it once, and, and I was introduced to your work. Um, because you, you've helped translate some of the work of the Soviets, but who was it who really introduced the concept that athletes should be training year-round and should be training with weights? Uh, boy, that's a tough one. I don't know if I'd put it on any one person. I think it came more from the fitness industry. Nautilus was probably uh, one of the biggest factors. Uh, and then Boyd Epley was a, uh, a strength coach in Nebraska, and Nebraska at that time was very muscular. They were one of the first ones to undergo a serious uh, strength training program. And then I think it spread from there. And he was the originator of the NSCA, and they kind of promoted you know, strength training, and it's still a biggie there today. Yeah, they came uh, into it. And how did Nautilus change that? Because actually, I do a little bit of consulting for Nautilus. I got, After we get off uh, this conversation, I have, I have to work on a, on a presentation I'm doing for them uh, in the next few weeks um, with a couple of their clients. But how, how did Nautilus really, really change the game? Nautilus had a whole line of machines, and they touted them uh, as being superior for gaining strength and muscle mass. You know, and that was the mentality for the football players. Strength and muscle mass. <laughs> now, I was with Nautilus, or I dealt with Nautilus, when Arthur Jones was the key player. Arthur Jones did much writing in the field of fitness and in strength training. And it was picked up. There weren't many people writing about strength training. But he was one of them who got a lot of notoriety. 
In fact, he and I went around a few times, uh, went a few rounds, I should say, uh, <laughs> back and forth with articles until he finally gave up. Well, he was equating strength with explosive power. Mm. And I said, you can't do it. They're two different entities. But see, at that time, Nautilus was all for strength, and they thought their machines did everything for the athlete. But, of course, it only made them stronger, that's all. And in many cases, it made them slower. We'll touch on that a little later. Well, I was, that, that brings me to the question. Is how would you define strength? I mean, what is your, your working definition of strength? Okay. The working definition, of course, is to be able to overcome a resistance. That's the simple version. Uh, but there are many different forms of strength. You know, you have outside of the physiological differences like concentric, eccentric, and isometric, See, we need all three, but eccentric sometimes is more important than a concentric because it's the key to explosive power or plyometrics. You need more and more eccentric strength rather than concentric. Uh, and then, of course, there are differences. Uh, well, like I mentioned explosive strength is absolute strength. The total amount of strength you can handle for one repetition. Then is relative strength. How much strength do you have per pound of body body weight? Uh, and then we have limit strength. What is the maximum that you can achieve? And here's where we get into drugs. See, drugs allow you to handle more weight. Without the drugs, you never be able to do it. And what Maybe is steroids? Well, and and what because I and I talk about that from time to time when I do education workshops. And what really are I mean, because you and I both have anabolic steroids in our body, correct? I mean, anybody listening to this technically has an anabolic steroid in their body, but whether or not they're from an exogenous source, that becomes the question. Right. See, they're a natural form, natural type. These are artificial, so they're not the body doesn't assimilate them as a natural product. And it sets up defenses to them, and it also has many detriments. Uh, one of the biggest things, and it's why we see so many injuries, I believe, uh, in football and other sports. The use of the steroids weakens the ligaments and tendons. So the muscles get much bigger and stronger. And then when you apply all that strength, the tendons can't handle it anymore. And that's when they rip and the muscle tears off the bone. Yeah, so and, many injuries are caused by it. And I think that's and I think an important thing for listeners to realize is that you know when we do strength training, one of the natural byproducts of strength training is uh, even 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 older men will increase their testosterone naturally, correct? Mm-hmm. And so all all you know minimal uh, levels, uh, minimal levels. But then all yeah. all all supplementation, all all um, performance enhancing drugs are is you're supplementing outside testosterone. I mean, is that is that what, what happened and how that, got, how that process got started? Well, uh, I, I think it's more than that. Uh, they really weren't looking for the reasons for it. They just knew that it worked. <laughs> Anything that would work, that was it, whether it's natural or not natural. In fact, there are many athletes, they've, uh, you know, interviewed them, and they're willing to use it even if it would kill them. They want to have their... A few years of fame, that was their big thing. But there are many natural forms of testosterone and other products that can be used to develop the testosterone. There are many precursors. So if we work on many of these, they'll build up to 
getting rated testosterone. And I think, but, you know, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, we shouldn't get hung up on the drugs because you really don't need them. If you train smart, and I've told you probably heard that term used many times, but it's the type of training that you do and how you work out. These are the keys. But just lifting weights to get stronger does not mean you're going to become a better performer. See, and I'm from the school that, well, let's go back to the beginning. If you're an athlete, what is the major factor that determines if you're going to be a good athlete? Is your skill on the field, your ability to, to play the there sport. There you go. There you go. The skill. How Your ability to execute the skill. All right. That means we have to take a look at skill execution or your technique. Yet this is, a, this is an ignored topic. You can't find many articles outside of those that I've written that deal with the technique of execution. In running, they talk about running form, and all they do is talk a little bit about posture and a couple other little things, but they don't look at what really happens in running. See, but if we did this, and then the second part of the equation is to develop more strength that is specific to the technique. See, one of the, one of the fact that I didn't get to, there's general strength and there's specific strength. General strength, and this is a definition I got from the Russians. It's not, I'm not coming up with it myself. General strength are exercises that will make you stronger or strengthen a particular muscle and joint, but will not improve performance. Special strength is strength that will improve performance as it develops strength. So in essence, it's a combination of technique and strength. The exercise couples the two. As you do the movement in the same neuromuscular pathway, you're developing strength in the same neuromuscular pathway. Therefore, it has an immediate effect on your skill execution. So this is why I deal quite a bit in this area, trying to develop strength exercises that duplicate exactly what you do uh, in your running stride or football throwing or baseball pitching, whatever it might be. And, and, that's, and that term is transfer of training, correct? Is that, is that what you're referring to? Right. Uh-huh. And, and special strength transfers. Okay. General if, does not transfer. And so with that, and, and you mentioned earlier, and one of the reasons why I wanted to, to speak with you a little bit is what did the Soviets, what, what, why was the Soviets' body of work in this area so unique? And what drew you to it when you first started studying it? Well, their emphasis on technique. Uh, this was number one in their uh, hierarchy of trainings. You must have the technique. This is why in their early grades in the elementary schools, see, their schools taught physical education. They didn't just play the way we do in our schools. It's a disgrace to see physical education the way it's carried out here in the United States. Uh, but there, there was a prescribed curriculum. In first grade, these are the skills you learn. For example, if it's running, you learn you know, how to drive straight or bring the knee up, uh, use the ankle more, whatever it might be. Then, you know, in second grade, these are the skills you must acquire. 
third grade, these are the skills. And they covered a multitude of sports. They believed in the more different sports and activities you could do, the better you become, not only in development, but better able to become great in any one sport. And I found this to be true. And even today, you take a look at the top athletes in all of our sports, top athletes in football, they played more than one sport. Top athletes in soccer, they played more than one sport. Now, there are exceptions, of course. But the better ones, and most of them, this is what we find. So you think it's a mistake when kids get started at an early age, like eight, nine years old, of saying, I'm only going to play baseball, I'm only going to play soccer? It's the worst mistake or the biggest mistake parents can do or can make their children. See, and, and today, I don't know if you've been uh, following it, but there's a whole new industry coming up. They call it, I think it's travel sports. Yeah, yeah. Where the kids, every weekend, they're traveling someplace. They're on these travel teams. And all over the country, parents are spending thousands and thousands of dollars just for the travel and the expenses of travel and paying the coaches. But yeah. what they leave out is the training. All they do is play. And play, as we know, is the worst way to become a better athlete. You only get better in strategy. You do not get better in skill execution. That's why you don't find kids that play year-round becoming pros. But yet, how parents can get uh, brainwashed in this is beyond me. Well, and I, I think that's the case because I've seen it, seen it happen with one or two friends who are struggling with it. And my advice to them has been, like, let your kid play as many sports as possible. And they're hearing that if their you know, 11 or 12-year-old wants to you know, be on the varsity team in high school or be competitive for a scholarship, they're, they're hearing from coaches who are only in it to try to – I mean, not only in it to make money, but they're trying to make money. They're having coaches tell them, well, no, they need to be on this travel team now. They need to go to these camps and, you know, I have two young girls, uh, Dr. Yesis, and, and my, my approach to my, my girls is I'm just going to have them play as many sports as possible, and I don't want them to specialize until they get to high school. And even then, I'm going to try to keep them from specializing in any one sport. And, and who knows, they might not even choose sports. They may choose dance or whatever else. But my goal is to try to expose them to many different movement opportunities as possible. Is that, should that be the case? Should that be the way that, that parents yeah, approach it? Yeah, Yes, and high school is the, the time to uh, begin to specialize. But during the early years, you know, up to, let's say, after puberty, after puberty, then you can start serious training and then in any one or two or three sports. Because most athletes don't know what they, they really like the best. So you give them till about 15 or 16. Then they can decide and begin serious training in only one sport. Yeah, that my my girls but, don't. You know, know, yeah, my girls don't know it yet, but they'll be on the national rugby team in about twenty years. We just haven't. They just haven't. They just haven't found rugby yet. But that, um, that's what I'm setting them up for. And I say that with a big smile on my face, kind of jokingly. Yeah. I was, all I want. Yeah. To, I look at it. My job as a parent is, is I want them to be physically literate. I don't. If they play a sport, that's good on them. I just want them to enjoy being physically active. Yes, and I think there's a little bit more to it. Uh, at least this is what I say. You're correct. I agree with you 100% with what you're saying. But I go one step further and I say, 
instead of them, yeah, let them do whatever they want, but you can also do some training with them to develop a foundation, develop a base that enables them to become greater in any one or two or three sports later. In other words, you're developing more coordination. You're developing the strength of all the major muscles in the body. You're developing a strong, healthy body capable of doing many different activities. So this is where some training comes in. And with this training, it allows them to become better at whatever they're doing uh, without too much stress on it. And that, and that's, I don't know if that makes sense. No, that, that makes total sense because right now my, you know, what I do, you know, I, I joke with them and I, I take them to the gym with me a couple of days a week. My, my wife and I both teach uh, group fitness part time and uh, well, they'll come to, to the health club with us and I talk about and I talk about exercise in terms of being healthy. I don't talk about it in terms of losing weight or anything. And I just talk right. about that mommy and daddy exercise to be healthy. And then at home, I have a bunch of kettlebells. I have a bunch of sandbags. And anytime uh, they pick them up, I don't discourage them. In fact, I encourage it. And, you know, if you want to pick them up, go ahead. And they'll, they'll show me how strong they are by just doing carries. And, and keep in mind, my oldest is only five and my youngest is three. And so okay. I, I'm not even I'm not even worried on you know movement skill now, but I take them to the playground as many days as I can and let them climb That's around and, and, and encourage them to climb as much as possible. Now, let, let's go this a little step forward. Um, and, you know, cause I, I want to talk about specific training for adults, you know, because this is good. And, and people listening to this, I, I know I have kids and I always like segueing in discussion about kids for that reason. But let's take this to a discussion about adults and especially, you know, adults in their 30s and 40s. Is strength training uh, is strength training correct and appropriate for adults aged like 35, 40 and up? And why? I mean, why is strength training a good thing that for adults to do? Uh, well, it, strength training is a good idea no matter what your age. It helps uh, maintain your musculature. It's good for overall functioning of the body. See, anytime you're strength training, uh, well without going into too much fine detail, you're activating the brain, you're activating the circulatory system, you're activating other systems in the body. So it has multitudes of, a multitude of benefits. Um, but maintaining strength is probably number one because number one is strength is what enables you to move and execute the daily tasks of your life. And, now, and for strength, how you, go ahead. No, sorry. I was just I was probably going to say the same thing. How you strength training becomes the key here. Yeah, uh, I, was just, I was just about to ask, like, what type of intensity and what type yeah. of rep range do you recommend? I mean, obviously, the way I've, the way I've learned it, and if, if I'm wrong, I'd you know, love for you to, to, to pipe in. But the way I've learned it, if we want to develop strength, and strength is different than muscle size, but if we want to develop strength, we want to work on the contractile element in the force production. And if I want to focus on strength, that should be somewhere in the four to eight rep range, fatiguing by the last repetition, not able to do another repetition. Would that be correct? All right. That is correct, but I also disagree with it. Okay. Okay, and, and here's the reasoning behind that. See, we, we well, let's forget the history here. <laughs> there, there's low intensity, there's moderate intensity, there's high intensity. Somehow it came about that high intensity is the way to go to get stronger, which it is. 
you can get stronger with, with high-intensity training. And what you described is one form of high-intensity training. Um, it could be, you know, five by five, you know, five repetitions for five sets. It could be five, three, one. Uh, it could be three sets of 10. Many of these, they're all high-intensity. But, and this came from the uh, Russian research, moderate intensity is much more effective for developing strength in the body. Your body can adapt more readily to moderate intensity than it can to high intensity. See, now, I've been preaching this most of my life. The key is to start off with multiple repetitions, get up into the 15, 20 range. Now, since then, we've kind of narrowed it down, made it a little uh, fancier, where I have a program called the 1 by 20 program, where in this program, in one training session, you do over 20 different exercises, or you can do over 20. It doesn't mean you have to. But you do it all for one set of 20 or more repetitions. Could be less, depending on how much you do. You go to the most I can do. We find in comparison to the high-intensity program that you mentioned, the athletes who are on a moderate program develop greater strength, and these are all significant, develop greater strength, muscular endurance, greater ligament tendon strength, greater coordination, greater you name it. Uh, see, so it's indicative of what moderate intensity can do. It is the key to adaptation. You get the best adaptation in the body from a moderate intensity program rather than a high intensity program. And you get both. And even if you take a look at, let's say, doing 20 reps, first 15, you can say is muscular endurance. But the last five has the same intensity as what you were doing in that one exercise mm, okay. for only four or five reps. Okay. So it's not a muscle is already getting fatigued and so this is where the strength component comes in, or the muscular endurance of the early ones. Okay. Uh, and then the other factors, the repetitions, good for the circulatory system, greater development of the capillaries, and so on. So would it be fair so, to say that the first 15, you know, if I'm doing a 20-rep protocol, would it be fair mm -hmm. to say that the first 15 or so are going to really fatigue and, and engage the, the type 1 motor units and muscle fibers and work on you know, your aerobic capacity, and then once those are fatigued, now I'm getting into the type twos, where the benefit would come in from a heavier, um, from a heavier set just for limited repetitions. So that way, as I, right. as I kind of fatigue the muscle fibers in the first 15 reps or so, then by the time uh, those are fatigued, the type twos kick in and do the work, and so I'm getting a combination of both aerobic endurance and strength. Is that kind of the the, the right. approach? Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. No, I like that. Yes. Yeah, and uh, we're finding we have many coaches now that use it with their athletes, especially on a high school level. See, this is the ideal program, uh, or even for the age group that you were talking about, 35 to 50 or so. See, it's ideal for them. You're not putting too much stress on the body as you do with the high-intensity program. The moderate intensity, they recover faster, they feel good, and they're gaining more physical abilities at the same time. See, and it's still progressive. When you start getting over 20 reps, add a little bit more resistance, get back down to about 15 or so. 
then you keep building up again, over 20 consistently, add more resistance. So here's where the progressive resistance exercise comes in. And are you a fan of compound, like multi-joint exercises, like squat? Oh, sure. Okay. Or is that something, is it a protocol that you'd recommend more in a machine to do isolation? No, no, no machine. Okay. Uh, with free weights. See, the reason I say no machine, machines can be used, of course. There's no question about it. <clears throat> but I find with free weights, there's more of a balance factor. So you'll gain more balance with the free weights as opposed to the machine. More of a neuromuscular, you get more into the nervous system and more into kind of a coordination aspect. Is that correct? Yeah, and you get more of the total body involvement. Okay. See, if you're standing, if you're standing and just doing biceps curls, all the muscles of your body are contracting minimally to maintain your balance and hold that position. But if you're sitting down, your lower body is completely relaxed and only your upper body is, see, you know, sensed up a little bit. So you can see the difference here. Oh, yeah. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm laughing just because I, I, I tell that to people all the time. It's, you know, I'm not going to let you sit down. You know, you have an hour and I want you to stand on your feet the entire hour. You know, we, your body burns mm -hmm. more calories. And the more muscles you use, the more calories you burn. Sure. I try to get them in, into that mindset. Now, quick question um, to, to kind of shift a little bit. What's the definition between strength and like explosive strength or power? How are the two different? Strength, uh, when you think in terms of absolute strength, when you're lifting a heavy weight, uh, most weight you can for one rep, the movement is slow. But explosive power means you are exhibiting strength but in the shortest amount of time possible. So in other words, let's say a jump. I can jump down, go down, and then come up again. And maybe it'll take me three, 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 four tenths of a second. But then if I went down really quick and hit and came back up again, I can execute it in two tenths of a second. Now I've doubled my speed of execution, which means I've exhibited more explosive power. So that's the main difference between the two. It's it, more power rather than strength. And does power come from, this is going to be a little technical question for, for listeners, but does power come from the contractile element of the muscle fiber? Or does power come more from the elastic component of the like the connective tissue, the tendon, and the fascia? What's, what's the interplay between both. the two types of tissue? Both. both? It, it comes from both. Yeah, you can't, uh, the muscle is still going to be somewhat involved. But the ligaments and tendons, uh, mainly the tendons, are the ones that can withstand, uh, well, let's say on a jump. When you jump down and stop, it will hold yourself so you don't collapse to the ground. There's stretching of the tendons and, and ligaments and muscle. Well, the stretching creates this eccentric strength. It's tension, and your muscles withstand that tension. They also absorb some of it for safety. But the main focus is on withstanding. You want to maintain or hold all of that tension. And then when the tension is uh, withstood and held in these ligaments and tendons, then it's released in the explosive contraction. So this is where the resiliency of the muscle comes in. You withstand all of this force and then give it back uh, when you do the squish to the concentric. And is that is that the definition of plyometric? Is that what a plyometric action yes. is? Yep. Yes, plyometrics is 
yeah, the withstanding of the forces and then giving them back when you return to the neutral movement. Uh, I mean, I say no thing. We could use the jump as probably the best example, but you can do it on just about any joint. And and now, the, uh, and this is a question. One of the reasons I wanted, you know, another reason why I wanted to speak with you today, sir, is because my my fears. I see plyometrics programmed incorrectly a lot in the gym. Would you consider a plyometric a skill exercise or a conditioning exercise? And, and what's the difference between the two? Never conditioning. <clears throat> plyometrics. Well, for, we have to distinguish. The problem came from a few of the early writers of plyometrics who didn't really understand what it was all about. They interpreted plyometrics as any type of jump activity. So you could be very slow, like a little kid, you know, jumping up and down. They call this plyometrics. It isn't. It's jumping. So jumping is one aspect. It's a good prelude to plyometrics. Plyometrics is a very intense type of activity. It entails a lot of neuromuscular activity and brain activity. Your brain actually has to, has to be prepared for this. So plyometrics should only be used, maybe could be depicted better when we think in terms of the shock method. This is what the Russians originally came up with. But we, we coined the term, Fred Wilt in the United States coined the term plyometrics. He just looked, looked it up in a book, plyo, yeah, and that's how he came up with it. <laughs> Probably a poor term, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Well, and, that, and that's how I see it misused because the way I learned it is is if I, I use plyometrics if I want to help somebody develop explosive strength. And so I'm looking at a very low rep range, maybe two maybe two to six reps maximum because it's, it's a maximal power output. You know, you're trying to generate as much force as rapidly as possible. And anything, generally I've viewed anything over five or six reps now becomes a conditioning exercise where you're really just working on maintaining, you know, consistency as opposed to maximal explosiveness. Is that, is that a correct way to look at the difference? Yes, but a little bit. I'd like to modify it just a little bit. Certainly. You can do up to 10 reps, depending upon the individual. But a high-level athlete, he could do up to 10 reps. So the average person, maybe five or six, as you mentioned, would be the best. And there's the rationale behind this are your ATP stores. Mm, okay. Because all these activities are executed using ATP as the major source of energy. And you only have enough ATP stores in the body to last about 10 seconds. So if you did 10 jumps, there's your 10, 10 seconds. That's true. Yeah, but so you don't you want to go over. Yeah, so you deplete it. And, you know, that, right. that, that's a good way of looking at that. And, and are plyometrics appropriate for, for um, adults over the age of 40, 45? For what purpose? Uh, I would imagine for and, resiliency. Like if I want to, and, and I'm not talking about a high volume or a high, you know, super high intensity, but some sort of plyometric rebound um, to work on the resiliency of the connective tissue. They just do jump training. Okay. So you don't have to do any like uh, depth jumps. 
which is, you know, the shock method. Uh, Or if you're going to do depth jumps, to keep it very low, maybe a one-foot box. Okay. So so the the shock method more refers to, like, the depth jump of hitting the ground and being able to explode up as opposed to just simple jumping underneath your own body weight. Is that that kind of how you're describing it? Yeah. And, uh, see, in the shock method, you have much more force on the landing as you must withstand. But in jumping, you never have that much force. So that's why it's much safer. But yet you're still getting the benefit. You're developing that resiliency in the muscle. So there's, yeah, because that's one thing I've always kind of applied from the information is, and again, it's not a super high volume or super high intensity, but working on the elastic recoil and working on the the ability of the tissue to be extensible is I do think there's a benefit of, uh, because we don't want people to lose that. If they don't use that tissue extensibility or that tissue elasticity, then my fear is you get some collagen cross bridging, you might you might lose it. That's right, you do. You do lose some. Okay, fine. Now, Go here, ahead. Yeah. I'm trying no, I was just gonna say genetics plays a slight role here too. <laughs> but yeah, uh, if you don't like it, thank your parents. <laughs> uh, yeah, but see, we shouldn't get hung up on genetics. Genetics only determine the limits that you that you can go to, not your ability to do it. Your, your genetics only plays about 30%, a 30% role in terms of either your uh, ability to do something or how good you want a particular sport. 70% is from your training. How you train becomes the key, regardless of how much explosive power or, you know, your genetics are in favor of a particular sport. They've actually done bona fide studies showing that uh, someone had, okay, I'm trying to remember the exact numbers, had 70% uh, fast switch fibers, very explosive. Another person only had 40%. These were two sprinters. The person with 40% after several years of training, while the person with 70% didn't do as much training, he out, out, she outrun him. So the training allowed that runner to, with only 40% fast switch fibers, run faster than the person with 70% fast switch fibers. It's in the training. Will that be achieving her genetic yeah. potential? Is that is that what, what we refer to as like yeah. achieving your genetic potential? Yeah, but the girl was 70 never even came close. Oh, really? Because she didn't train. Huh. See, she relied on, this is what happens with many uh, genetically gifted athletes. They don't train. Because they're better than everybody else. They think they're the best. They don't train enough to go to their max. Yeah, we're getting ready to start the NFL season here. And you always, I always find that interesting that, in the NFL, you'll see a high draft pick. They kind of, you know, they they don't, after two or three years in the league, you kind of lose them or they drop out of the league because they relied on their genetic potential for so long. Now they get in a, in a league where everybody's the same level, and if they don't have the work ethic, yeah. they're not going to survive. Whereas you could take somebody who is maybe an undrafted free agent who worked their tail off to get there. They have a long career because they just, they have the work ethic and the and the perseverance to stay with it. Is that, I mean, have you noticed the same thing? Oh, yes, right on. An accurate uh, description of what's taking place. 
And now last thing uh, yeah. while I have you here, sir, last question I want to ask about is periodization. Do you use, okay. do, you, do you believe in periodization and, and how do you describe it when, when people ask you what it is? What's an easy way to describe uh, that concept? All right. I, I usually tell them something like this. Every training that you do should develop your body to a particular level. In other words, I'm training this way to get this. Now, once I have full adaptation or I've achieved whatever I trained for, now I am capable of doing this type of training. So now I can change and go into another type of training. When I achieve full adaptation from that type of training, now I'm capable of doing still a different type of training. So periodization, in my mind, is training to become or to achieve a certain goal, which then allows you to achieve another goal, which then allows you to achieve still another until you are the best in your sport or whatever it is that you're training for. So this is how I use the concept of periodization. I don't just cut it off and say, all right, we've gone for three months on this program. Now we must do this. No. You take a look at the athlete. Has he achieved all this? Like I mentioned, the one by 20 program. We've had some athletes, especially on a high school level, go year round for two years on the program before we made any changes. Now, we've made changes in the exercises, but still developed the same muscles. So we did have variety in there so they wouldn't get bored. But the point is that they were capable of doing this type of training and still gaining. As long as you're gaining, getting stronger, getting better, performing better, then maintain the same program. Once there's a slowdown or you seem to be plateauing, now we need a change. Then we go into the change. Then after that, once there's a slowdown, again another change. So this is how you would periodize. And I don't use any specific dates or times. Do you, I mean, do you base it on testing? Do you base it on, on feeling in terms of how the athlete feels? Or do you do like a specific testing protocol when you're, when you're to gauge whether or not somebody's ready to move into the next phase or into the next block? Both. Uh, the testing is not on particular tests, like, for example, bounding. Well, if there are more, no more increases, you'll find, even just from the 1 by 20, they keep increasing the distance that they can bound or jump. But once you don't see this increase anymore, now we know things are slowing down. And you can even see it by eye, how the athlete's performing. You don't see any progress. But when progress is being made, you can see it. Uh, at least I can, but I've been doing this for 50 years now. So, that's, <laughs> so you can notice that. You know, I have an eye that's trained you know, to see this. And, and now, uh, what role does recovery play? So when you look at a periodization program, to take it like kind of a step further, what role does recovery play when uh, you look at like the athlete adaptation cycle or how athlete or individual adapts to, to the training? Okay, now there, I use recovery two different ways. 
there's recovery from your daily workouts, and there's recovery after you have gone through a particular type of training. Usually after you go through a particular type of training, then we take a break of at least a week or so. Then we move into the next type. In other words, we're giving the body a chance to relax and let adaptation continue and get complete. Now we're ready for something else. But the recovery from day to day is probably most important. Uh, and this involves both nutrition, sleep, uh, and physical means. Like even using a sauna. You go to gym very often. How many people use a sauna after their workouts? But yet it's very good. And what's the benefit but not of sauna? Immediately. And what's the benefit of sauna for recovery? How does that promote the recovery process? Well, you're helping get rid of some of the toxins that have been built up in the body through the sweating. Uh, and, well, that's probably number one. There are more. You know, I, I had extensive, and I'm going blank here for a minute. I had extensive literature on this. In fact, I went, Finland invited me over to study their saunas. And they have volumes of uh, studies that they've done on the sauna and its benefits, both the individual as well as for uh, the athlete. Uh, but there are many, uh, there are quite a few different benefits. And overall, I think you just feel better. So you don't feel like, boy, I just had a workout, I'm wiped out. After you get done with the sun and have a nice shower, you feel like you're ready to go again. And now, would it be correct but to then, go ahead? Well, let me ask this question. Right. Would it be correct yeah. to say that we get stronger? Because you, you touched on this. And would it be correct to say that we get stronger we and we get fitter or we adapt in the period after exercise and not necessarily during the workout itself. Is that why it's important to take a recovery week every so often? Correct. Now, there's some adaptation that, that occurs right, right after you work out or even that evening after a workout. But to get complete adaptation, we have to take a break. See, this is almost analogous to tapering. You know, you hear of like swimmers. Well, they, they work, 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 then they take a taper week prior to competition. See, this is where the body is now going through full adaptation and they can peak. And, um, and I think that's because I, I see that's the one thing that, that often that, that people do, you know, do incorrectly in the commercial fitness space, you know, where, you know, I know that athletes will take time off after a season or they take you know, a couple of days off or a day or two off to rest, you know, before a sport. And the one thing I found fascinating about the Soviet methodology was the Soviets would rather have an athlete slightly underprepared than overtrained coming into competition. Correct. Because once, uh, yes. yeah, because once the gun goes off, once, you know, once the competition starts, you'd rather have an athlete slightly undertrained because, you know, the, the, the competition will increase that excitability and their body will take over and they won't be in a state of fatigue. But I see a lot of people in general fitness, they exercise every day and they try to exercise at a high intensity every day. But many, And then they wonder why they're not making gains or why they're constantly getting injured or why they're even gaining weight. Do you think that's an that's a issue with the regular, just the average fitness consumer? Is that maybe they're overtraining? Yes, that's a valid uh, conclusion. And let me even maybe uh, give you an example just to uh, back it up. 
we uh, now use the one by 20 with several college programs. Now, you would think in college, by this time, they're going to be doing more high intensity. Well, they've been doing high intensity all the time. But when they do the one by 20, they experience tremendous gains. So this indicates that they've been overtraining all the time. To even doing more strength training in season, it should never be. There's no need for it. They're overtraining. The athletes already be beat up from a game. They're tired. They need rest. They need recovery. And they throw on more weight training and other types of training uh, in addition to their practices. So avoid too much high intensity. Avoid anything too much. Like I wanted to say this with the sauna even. All the different means of restoration. Only use it two times a week, maybe three. But you don't do it every day. Then you're going to lose its benefits. And even a lot of recovery comes from your diet. Are you getting all the minerals and uh, vitamins that your body needs to bring the systems back to normal? This this becomes the key. That that becomes essential. Uh, and then if people want to get more information from you, uh, Dr. Yesis, uh, what's your website? And and you have a book that is uh, Building a Better Athlete, correct? How can somebody get a hold yes. of that? Okay. Uh, really, just by going to my website. Uh, and that's www.dryesis at Dr. D-O-C-T-O-R. Y-E-S-S-I-S dot com. So it's Dr. Yes is at Dr. Yes dot com, but doctor spelled out on the second part. And I'll have, uh, a, yeah, I'll have a link to your website down in, in the show notes below. And Dr. Yesis, I really, I appreciate your time and I appreciate your insights. I mean, I, I like I said, I've, I, I've read your work over the years and, and, and been a fan of your approach to training. And, and I always, you know, through this podcast, I'm trying to expose people to um, a smart way or the scientific method, as opposed to, you know, what's become more common of just because somebody looks good on social media doesn't really mean they know what they're talking about. <laughs> yes. I agree. And if I can, I'll, I'll let me do a little advertisement here for a second. Certainly. Absolutely. Uh, to, to those parents uh, who uh, think their children should be playing sport year round. Uh, I'm developing some programs now specific to these kids. Right. I won't say I challenge them, but instead of training for one year, let them get off for one year and train. You know, working on improving their technique, working on improving their physical abilities and so on. They'll come back the following year twice as good as they could have been if they kept on playing. But let them contact me. Uh, they can call me at my number, 760-480-0558. And I'll be glad to talk to them about this and help them out because it's the kids that are suffering from it. And I hate to see this. You know, we have so much talent that we waste. So I'm sorry to inter interrupt no, there. That, that's such an, that, that's such an, I, I'm glad you said that. Um, Cause I, that's such an important concept. And, and, and the, you know, my fear is that, is that the, the kids that are overplaying a sport get burnt out and they don't want to, you know, they don't want to exercise right. you know, 15, 20 years when they're an adult, they have a really negative uh, perception and negative opinion of exercise 
as opposed to, um, you know, having a, a long, healthy relationship with being active. Right. Yeah, it's a very good point. Well, sir, thank you for your time. And I look forward to uh, staying in touch with you. And, and next time I want to do this in person and uh, be able to sit down and, and go into a little more detail about, about your work on the Soviet method. Okay, sure. I'd be glad to. Anytime. Well, hopefully I didn't get a little too technical for you. I mean, yes, that was a long conversation. And yes, yeah, absolutely got a little geeky. Because as you could hear, Dr. Yesis has a tremendous, you know, a deep well of knowledge. And, you know, I really don't mind, you know, when somebody, somebody takes a different point of view from me. Or when I'm, you know, somebody points out that I might be mistaken. I don't mind that. Because, you know, how else are we going to learn? You know, as a speaker, as someone who does a, a lot of work in the public realm, when I, go, when I give workshops, when I, do, when I do seminars, you know, I like it. You know, it's all well and good to have people tell you they enjoy it. And, but I really like it when people point out something I could be doing better. So especially with somebody with as much experience and, and as much knowledge as Dr. Yesis, if he points out one or two areas where I might, you know, might be mistaken or might not be thinking correctly, heck, I, I don't mind. I'm getting, a, I'm getting free education. Hopefully you learned a little something out of that, too. You know, so I'm not going to give too much of a, of a postlude here. I just want to, you know, re- reiterate and restate what, a, what an honor it was. Because I've read his work over the years, as I said. And I really, you know, as someone who appreciates the science of what we do, you know, that's one thing that a lot of people overlook. You know, the body, the human body is a complex series of systems. You know, when you exercise, when you work out, you're putting stress on all of your systems. You know, how you exercise will really determine the results that you get because your body is a stress response mechanism. You know, so, you know, the worst thing that you could do, as you've heard me talk about with many, many of my clients, with my clients, many of my guests, the worst thing you do is train too hard or train too often because we have to give ourselves a chance to, to respond, to adapt, to accommodate. Well, accommodate's more of a plateau, but we have to give our bodies a chance to adapt to the stress of training. So especially as we get a little bit older, folks, you know, we're all getting a little bit older each day. So if you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, or your 70s, I mean, you can still, you really can. You can still enjoy your favorite activity. I mean, Dr. Yusis is, I don't know his age, but he's up there. I know he could easily be retired and collecting Social Security, and I think that's at 70 and a half is when you max that out. But he's still active. He's still fit. You know, so there's no, you know, you can't let age stop you. The whole point I'm doing this podcast is I don't want age to stop you from your favorite activity. Get out there, no matter what you like, weightlifting, kettlebells, yoga, walking, gardening. Heck, I consider everybody's done a good amount of gardening. No, that's pretty strenuous. You know, I want you to enjoy your favorite activity. So I'm trying to give you information that you can use to enjoy whatever that activity is. So anyway, that's it. I really thank you for tuning in to All About Fitness. If you're enjoying these podcasts, if you, if you uh, are getting a lot out of them, all I ask is that you do me a favor and give me a rating, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, YouTube, however you listen to this, however you consume this, you know, I'm putting it out there. I just want to get good information out there. There's a lot of nonsense information out there. So I'm trying to get the best guests I can find. And that includes going with the researchers. It's a little bit of a geeky topic today, but hey, you know, if you do exercise, you want to understand what you're doing to your body. If you have any questions, and, and I'm going to start reading questions from, from listeners on my quick fit tip, uh, little quick short podcast. If you, want to, if you have any questions that you'd like me to answer on air, please send me an email, pete at petemccallfitness.com. 
You can find me on Instagram, Pete McCall underscore fitness. I put out little informational videos and just little bits of information. I also put out new podcasts via Instagram. You can also catch me on Twitter at Pete MC underscore fitness. So hopefully you got a lot of today's conversation. I know I did, and I certainly don't mind being corrected when I'm making mistakes. Thanks for tuning in. Have a healthy and happy day.